You are listening to WTUZ Radio Podcast. Welcome to WTUZ Radio Podcast. I am your host, Rhonda. Um, Family, this is uh, just a drop I'm going to do real quick. I had a sis posted this particular piece of information and she actually tagged me in it. Um, So shout out to sis Katari. She's always, we're always dialoguing back and forth and... um, She's always dropping some good stuff. So uh, the title of this podcast is called uh, Social Engineering in the Big Cities. All right, family. Let's get to it. So let me share my screen. And chow. the first article I'm going to bring up let me just share my screen, child. Let me hold on a second, family. Okay. Now, why isn't window capturing working? Just a second, family. Okay, because I'm doing the wrong thing, Rhonda. Can't blame it on the technology when you up in the wrong. Okay, child. Y'all already see whose magazine this is, right? The Smithsonian. Real quick on the Smithsonian, for those that do not know, whenever there are any type of archaeological digging going on around the world, guess who's right there front and center? If they are not funding it, They're definitely being notified because they make the decision on what's going to be disclosed to the public and what's not going to be disclosed to the public. So just think of how many ancient artifacts we do not know about. So supposedly and allegedly, this was also the case uh, with various species that were on the planet before, quote, quote, humans, and specifically uh, giants, okay? So you can go do a little research yourself. Uh, We actually, on Truth Uncompromised, I think it was two years ago, we did a drop on the giants and the Smithsonian was a big part of that. Because as they were colonizing uh, over here in the Americas, uh, particularly around the 1800s, when they really started terraforming, um, cutting down even more trees uh, and doing digging, folks were finding, quote, quote, giants. Um, folks that were granted land, and I'm, I'm using granted with my apostrophe asterisk fingers, were granted land, aka stolen land, uh, farmers or whatever started clearing the land, and there were uh, countless articles in uh, those local areas of uh, folks finding giant bones and giant skulls, okay? But that's not what this is about. I just wanted to give you all, for those that didn't know, when you hear the names Smithsonian, just know on what they be doing behind the scenes, okay? All right, so um, how 1960s mouse... Utopias led to grim predictions for the future of humanity. John Calhoun studied behavior during overcrowding in mice and rats. What does utopia look like for mice? According to a researcher, 
who did most of his work in the 1950s through 1970s, it might include limitless food, of course, multiple levels, and secluded little rodent condos. These, I'm kind of getting the heebie-jeebies, y'all. Ooh, I got the heebie-jeebies a little bit, thinking about all these rats and mice, but let me keep on. These were all part of John Calhoun's experiments to study the effects of population density on behavior. But what looked like rat utopia and mouse paradise at first quickly spiraled into out-of-control overcrowding, eventually population collapse, and seemingly sinister behavior patterns. The mice were not nice. At the peak population, most mice spent every living second in the company of hundreds of other mice. They gathered in the main square, waiting to be fed and occasionally attacking each other. Few females carry pregnancy to term and the ones that did seemed to simply forget about their babies. They'd move half their litter away from danger and forget the rest. Sometimes they dropped and abandoned a baby while they were carrying it. The few secluded spaces house a population Calhoun called the beautiful ones. Generally guarded by one male, the females and few males inside the space didn't breed or fight or do anything but eat and groom and sleep. When the population started declining, the beautiful ones were spared from violence and death, but had completely lost touch with social behaviors, including having sex or caring for their young. Calhoun's experiments, which started with rats and outdoor pen and moved on to mice at the National Institute of Mental Health during the early 1960s, were interpreted at the time as evidence of what could happen in an overpopulated world. Mm-hmm. I am saying... They can miss me with the overpopulated world. They're trying to slant it, but they can't get up early enough to fool us because this is not about a study about an overpopulated world. This is a study about urban cities. That's what this study is about about taking folk, in this case, the mice and stuff, from their natural habitat and cramming them all together in one dense area, i.e. cities. The unusual behaviors he observed, he dubbed behavioral sinks. After Calhoun wrote about his findings in a 1962 issue of Scientific American, the term caught on in popular culture. According to a paper published in the Journal of Social History, the work tapped into the era's feeling of dread that crowded urban areas. Uh, But I thought it was about overpopulation of the world. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. The error feelings of dread that crowded urban areas herald the risk of moral decay and events like the murder of Kitty Genovese though it was misreported, only served to intensify the worry. A host of science fiction works, books like Soylent Green, 
Chow, if y'all have not seen Soylent Green, it's old school, y'all. I want to say it was 60s or either the 70s. I am recommending you go watch it. If they made it into a movie. Books like Solent uh, Green, comics like 20 AD, played on Calhoun's ideas and those of his contemporaries. The work also inspired the 1971 children's book, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of NIMH, and that's the National Institution of Mental Health. <clears throat> which was also made into a 1982 film, The Secrets of NIMH. Now, an uh, interpretation of Calhoun's work has changed. English Arkell explains that the habitats he created weren't really overcrowded, but that isolation enabled aggressive mice to stake out territory and isolate the beautiful ones. She writes, instead of a population problem, one could argue that Universe 25 had a fair distribution problem. Hmm. I'll keep reading. I'll read it and then I'll give my uh, drop because it's a video attached to this as well. But we can take comfort in the face that humans are not mice. The NIH record spoke to medical historian Edmund Ramsden about Calhoun's work. Ultimately, rats may suffer from crowding. Human beings can cope, Ramsden says. Calhoun's research was seen not only as questionable, but as dangerous, but also as dangerous. Another researcher, Jonathan Friedman, turned to studying actual people. They were just high school and university students, but definitely humans. His work suggests a different interpretation. Moral decay could arise not, not from density, but from excessive social interaction, Ramsden says. Not all of Calhoun's rats had gone berserk. Those who managed to control space led relatively normal lives. Seems like you're double talking there. Because if they were able to get some space, then they were cool. So meaning lack of space means they're not cool. So then that means, oh boy, Calhoun's work is correct. Calhoun's work didn't give us answers, but it's, yes, it did. But it's rare that any single study or series of studies can draw definite conclusion. Instead, we have ideas and some strange footage of old experiments about mouse utopias. All right, so let's look at this uh, because it's only eight minutes. The work of Dr. John Calhoun at the National Institute of Health in Washington, D.C., has attempted to answer this question. In a unique experiment that took years to complete, Dr. Calhoun used white mice to study population growth and its effects on individual behavior. In addition to his renowned research papers, he has recorded some of these observations on film. In this 16-cell mouse habitat, utopian conditions of nutrition, comfort, and housing were provided for a potential population of over 3,000 mice. Yet, in spite of ideal conditions, the mouse population met with catastrophe. Individuals were kept track of by color markings on their fur. Factors which normally control population growth, such as predation by owls or cats, were eliminated. Transmissible disease was also reduced. In effect, the mouse universe simulated the present situation of a continually expanding population of humans. To see how Dr. Calhoun's mouse universe grew, we'll use the familiar population graph again. Within the first 100 days, 
the mice went through the period Dr. Calhoun called strive. This was a period of adjustment. Territories were established and nests were made. The next period lasted about 250 days. The population of the mice doubled every 60 days. This was called the exploit period. The use of resources became unequal. Although each living unit was identical in structure and opportunities, more food and water was consumed in some areas. As the population increased, most mice associated eating and drinking with the presence of others and crowding developed in certain units. The third period, consisting of 300 days, found the population of mice leveling off. This was called the equilibrium period. Dr. Calhoun noticed that the newer generations of young were inhibited, since most space was already socially defined. At this time, some unusual behavior became noticeable. Violence became prevalent. Excess males strived for acceptance, were rejected, and withdrew. Huddling together, they would exhibit brief flurries of violence among themselves. the effects of violence became increasingly visible. Certain individuals became targets of repeated attack. These individuals would have badly chewed and scarred tails. Other young mice growing into adulthood exhibited an even different type of behavior. Dr. Calhoun called these individuals the beautiful ones. Their time was devoted solely to grooming, eating, and sleeping. They never involved themselves with others, engaged in sex, nor would they fight. All appeared as a beautiful exhibit of the species, with keen alert eyes and a healthy, well-kept body. These mice, however, could not cope with unusual stimuli. Though they looked inquisitive, they were, in fact, very stupid. Dr. Calhoun called the last period the die phase, leading the population into extinction. Although the mouse utopia could house 3,000, the population began to decline at 2,200. In the shift from the equilibrium to the die phase, each animal became less aware of associates, despite all animals being pushed closer together. Dr. Calhoun concluded, that the mice could not effectively deal with the repeated contact of so many individuals. The evidence of violence increased to the point where most individuals had had their tails bitten to some degree. Eventually, the entire mouse population perished. Dr. Calhoun's experiment is a classic example of a typical population and its growth when left unchecked. Research in this area continues under his supervision. Currently, Dr. James Hill has taken the basics of the Calhoun experiment to study social behavior even more closely. In his experiments, rats are used instead of mice. Healthy individuals are selected to start the population. The rats are anesthetized so that Dr. Hill can perform a minor operation necessary to the success of his experiments. A small electromagnetic encapsulated device is implanted into every rat. This small unit enables sensing devices to keep track of the movement and position of each individual in the population. After surgery, the rats are introduced to their new multi-leveled home all at the same time. So... I'm going to put it back on. So I just want y'all to pay attention to the structure of the rat's um, home 
and remember the structure of the mice home. The rats immediately begin to explore their new environment prior to organizing territories and nesting. Dr. Hill will trace how individuals move about in crowded situations. This movement is followed by tubular sensing devices. Every time a rat enters or passes through a tube, the unit detects and registers its presence. This constant movement is monitored by computer. Nesting activity is also studied. Dr. Hill has observed that the larger the population, the less care a mother gives to her nest and young. The same type of individuals that resulted in the mouse utopia are also emerging in the rat population. There are aggressives, asocials, and outcasts. Though these studies use animals, the findings about population growth and individual behavior are being closely compared to our own human population. Like all populations that have existed on this planet, many researchers believe that the human race has reached a crucial point in the exploit phase, a point where important decisions must be made and careful planning implemented if we are to survive. The study of plant and animal populations helps us to make decisions about the future of our human population so that we may maintain our own balance with nature. All right, so... This study pretty much reminded me of the great migration of melanated folk, aka relabeled African Americans, although very little of the population origins were from Africa maybe 1%, when it was really indigenous American Indians and Black Europeans coming from the South, owning uh, acres and acres and acres of land. And uh, because of the way they were uh, stripped of their land. A, a lot of them either walked away from it, they were swindled out of it. Uh, most families, what most families did, some of the families stayed with the land and then some went up north, we call it going up north, to the big cities to work. And uh, some of the families never intended to stay up north permanently. They intended to make a certain amount of money and come back to the south. Very little of them did that. Although now, ironically, melanated people are returning to the south and have returned to the south. Okay, so... When the Great Migration happened where melanated folks were going up north and they hit the big cities, uh, those urban areas exploded. And uh, basically what happened, they took over the ghetto areas from the white Europeans who started moving to the suburbs and then basically, the government came up with projects, all right? So those of us up north, uh, I'm talking Chicago, New York, I don't know 
if other cities have those high-rise projects. Um, but projects are basic, basically projects. Uh, the, either the high-rises, uh, Chicago, we called them the short stacks. And then you had the row houses. Because I think most of the other cities have um, or had row houses, okay, which were basically like these um, apartments, like connected together, all right? Now they would call them in the fancy areas. Now they would call them townhomes, except you can tell a row house different from a townhome. I'm trying to explain it to folks that don't know what a row house looks like. But anyway, those were all uh, classified as projects, and the purpose of them were to give low-income housing to families. Now, <clears throat> specifically when we talk, looking at this experiment, I immediately thought of how projects were built. You had apartments stacked on top of each other. You literally, in the first mice experiment, they had the little metal uh, grid. Anybody from Chicago, y'all know that metal grid on them projects. Uh, and then the courtyard. That's how projects pretty much looked. Uh, New York, I, I can't remember if y'all don't think y'all had a grid on y'all stuff, that metal grid. I don't think y'all had that metal grid, but I know y'all had y'all little um, courtyards, okay? That's what this experiment reminds me of. And both of them were, um, you know, the New York set and the Chicago set, of course, that it's in the heart of the city, quote, quote, urban areas. And they also built uh, row houses as well. We know how that particular project turned out, right? Some of the same exact behavior that happened with these mice and rats, Folks fighting for resources, violence breaking out. And in the experiment, you know, he pretty much was saying, the Calhoun man, this is what happens when there's not enough space. Of course, Smithsonian being who they are, and how they always want to use the um, overpopulation thing. They want to slant it towards overpopulation. But you keep talking about urban city areas. So which is it? Isn't it the fact that you pushed because of your economic policies, folks into the cities, and particularly melanated folk going into these projects, it turned out to be a straight disaster. So that whole project experiment was a bust. We all know how that ended up to the point now that across the uh, United States, they've pretty much gotten rid of the quote, quote projects. Um, I know in Chicago they have. And what really just blows my mind, anybody that grew up in Chicago when you see one of the worst projects, they've done documentary after documentary on Cabrini Green. Chow. They did not tear all of the projects down. Some of them they turned into condos because some of those projects 
were sitting on prime property close to downtown and to the lake. So it's it's still hard for us to even fathom that that used to be literally the hood uh, with bodies dropping, all of that jazz, and they dispersed it. Um, and then I guess my other point I wanted to make, um, because my particular family on both sides were from the South, uh, South Carolina, Mississippi. So both sets, half moved, half of the family moved up North to make money, specifically Chicago in our case, and wind up in the projects. Uh, fortunate for my family, it only lasted one generation. I want to say the max was maybe 15 years. We were able to get out. Uh, the roughest project, Cabrini Green, it actually was where my parents met. And to hear them describe how the projects were back then, it was nothing like the horror stories that we heard throughout the years. So in other words, that correlates with exactly what dude's uh, experiment is talking about. Okay? So how can they convince us that that was not social engineering when you could have easily provided housing across those same cities by providing low-income housing with a yard. They did not do that. It was specifically and deliberately targeted to melanated folk of Black European and indigenous and Indian American heritage to be bundled together in the condensed cities competing for very little resources. In the meantime, the new kids on the block, the Caucasian white Europeans were the ones given the housing. And as a matter of fact, they expanded to what we know today as suburbs. They literally planned communities for the Caucasian European whites, entire suburban communities. Back in those times, melanated families could not even get financing for homes in those suburban areas. Okay? So I just wanted to share this with the family um, to just kind of talk about social engineering uh, it is definitely real. Now, what can be done from the melanated community's perspective? Well, the first step is just awareness. It's definitely awareness. And now that, now I don't know about every city. I know Atlanta got rid of its quote, quote, projects. Uh, no, Chicago did. I know New York hasn't. I know New York hasn't because New York is one of those densely populated areas. There's not enough room to disperse all of those folk. 
So the high-rise project still exists in New York. That I do know. But the point is, as melanated people, we have to be aware of these things. We have some serious decisions that have to be made. So when we talk about the importance of nature, this stuff is real, family. This, it, it isn't made up. So I don't care what they, how much they try to slant this particular experiment with what uh, old boy was saying, Calhoun. I think he was pretty clear and he proved his point. Because the rat and mice wouldn't have had all of this dramatization if they were in their natural habitat. They be in the fields and all of that stuff. Harassing the farmer's gardens. <laughs> That's the best habitat for them. So putting them in this quote, quote, controlled, dense habitat pretty much destroyed them. Okay, so in this experiment, it said it got to the case uh, to the point where the, the population uh, decreased. Now, I'm not saying that that went on in the projects. I don't think that went on in the projects at all. What happened in the projects was it was a psychological warfare. It was a psychological warfare that still exists today. And that psychological warfare is, this is the best I can get. I need to prey on or either be preyed upon. It definitely fostered an environment of pure survival. That it's not natural. It's not natural to be so disconnected from nature. It is not natural. So, just in, in my two cents, just urban cities in general are a total failure. That is why now when you see these gentrification neighborhoods, you see them incorporating what? Mixed use communities. Now they're talking about urban gardens being in every community. They're talking about permaculture, which is basically a fancy word of saying create a, they call it also food forest, which is a fancy way of saying how we pretty much grew up in the South. So meaning you didn't have to walk too far up the road or heck, go in y'all backyard or in y'all garden, pick from the fruit trees, pick from the berries, pick from the nut trees. Always a garden growing. Now they're trying to incorporate those things across these new gentrification neighborhoods in the urban cities. But what's the catch? You have to have big dollars in order to live in said areas. It ain't like they doing nothing new. 
It ain't like they doing nothing so doggone spectacular. I think it's a wonderful idea. It should have been done all along. With their city planning. But guess who was always doing that? Melanated people. You will not find melanated in a melanated neighborhood. I'm talking old school. It's dying out. I'm hoping that the younger generation picks some of these things up. You just was not going to find somebody that had a backyard that didn't have a garden. Even in the cities. You, you, you just would, would not find it. All of that came from the South family. That was our, that was our people from the South that did that. I was uh, just yesterday. I had to stop by my sister's house. They're only uh, maybe a mile from me. So both of us grow gardens, of course, because her mom, Nim, from Mississippi, um, her mom, and she's fortunate enough, her grandmother is still around. Um, she's 90, so I just love to get a lot of wisdom from her. So I was over there, call myself bringing them some vegetables. I'm like, here y'all, take some vegetables. I don't want this stuff to go bad. And so I had some corn and she's like, oh, we don't need no corn because I'm growing corn, but I put mine in late. So mine hasn't shot up yet, but somebody else gave me some corn. So... I'm like, but wait a minute, though. Um, Y'all got corn ready to harvest corn, or is it still coming up? She's like, no, we got corn ready to harvest corn. I'm like, okay. She's like, so keep those. I said, okay, I'll keep them. I'll just, um, I'll just freeze them, whatever, whatever. So she was like, come on in the back and see the garden. Now, my sister don't, don't garden. That's not her thing, but she don't have to because I know how to do it really well. Her mom knows how to do it. We ain't going to start. That's, that's just the bottom line. So they always, um, I always like give them seeds because I have seeds four or five generations. We'll never have to buy any more seeds. So um, she said, yeah, come in the back and, and see the garden. And every year I ask them, do y'all need, you know, do uh, y'all need help for me to come over there and put the seeds down? No, we're good. So I go back in the back because their yard is bigger than my yard. Chow. She had two rows of corn, crowder peas. Um, the collards are harvested because it's too hot for collards. But uh, about, about next month, we can replant our collards. They'll start back up. Kale. Maters. So basically, I was so happy. I'm like, oh my God, yeah, they're doing, they got their big garden good. Now, no, I never have to go over to them for food because I have my own garden. I be giving my neighbors food. So um, I was like, oh my God, I know. Because I got worried. I said, I know. I hope that your mom and granny did not plan all of this by themselves, I would have came over and helped. She said, girl, no. Um, the neighbor next door, child, he come over and plant the stuff and we be sharing. And I just smiled. I'm like, oh my God, yes! That's how it's supposed to be done. And she said, yeah, and the neighbor behind us, um, he asked, could he plant some tomatoes right behind the corn because he don't have no um, room either. And he comes and, 
you know, cleans up the beds and all of that. She says, so girl, really, they don't have to do no work. They just come out here and harvest. You know, we all just harvest what we want and keep it moving. That's how we used to do it up north when we got yards. That's exactly how we used to do it up north. The projects, that's not natural. It's not natural. It messes with your frequency, your vibration, all of the damn noise, the fact that you're not close to nature, you can't walk on the grass. It's just not natural. It messes with your mental. It messes with your consciousness. So when people talk about getting back to nature, and I know some people want to over-dramatize stuff and all of that jazz, you know, and I, I hear so many people say, <coughs> buy a bunch of acres um, and work the land. And I'm cool with that too. I think that's an excellent idea. I think every family should have a couple of acres of land and that should be family land and it never should be sold and it should be passed uh, from generation to generation and generation like Papa and Big Mama used to do. And uh, till the trifling ones came and start selling the family land. I am absolutely all for that. That's the way it should be done. If you are not in the position to do that, wherever you are, you really need to make an effort to create some type of natural habitat. Even if you are stuck in these urban areas where you don't have the opportunity to have a lot of green space, you go to your city, go to the city council, and you fight for a spot. And in urban areas, they will work, they will work with you. They'll work with you. They used to be against it, but not anymore. I have personally, in Atlanta, went in and said, this is what I want. And I'm going to hold your feet to the fire until you do it. Now, based on my years of harassment, they finally did it. Now, I'm not there to enjoy it. Don't matter. And they actually did it big. They created a food forest on old land that used to be old projects. So now that community at least have a place where they can go get fresh fruit and vegetables. If you have a backyard, and I'm not even saying you have to grow food, although it would be nice for you to pick up that survival skill. In the least, somebody in the family should have that survival skill. And yes, it is a survival skill. Because anytime you have to depend on a system to feed you, go watch that movie, Solvent Green. It's dangerous. They've already warned us on what can happen to the food supply. They showed you that with Honore. They already showed you how the food supply can become very, very sketchy. Now we're at the point where uh, the prices of food 
have gone really, really ridiculous. They're off the chain. Uh, my cousin, well, her country, I guess I can't call nobody country child. I got a lot of nerves. Um, she <laughs> showed the other day a pack of um, oxtails. Child, it was like five in there. Honey, they wanted $20 for that. I, I said, I was sitting, drinking my water. I said, I told y'all, keep keep on playing. Keep on playing. Keep right on playing with these people. Keep going and depending on them to feed you. So, it is definitely about being connected to nature family. No child should have to grow up in a concrete jungle. No child should have to grow up like that. Where the air is stale. The hallways for you to walk into your home smells of urine. To dispose of your trash, it's an incinerator. It has to be burned. No child should have to grow up like that. Hell, no adult should have to function in that. You're always on guard. Your nerves is bad. You're truly in survival mode. Because there is a disconnect from nature. That was a social engineering experiment that failed miserably. Okay? And so dude Calhoun proved it with the mice. Now, of course, not every behavior of the little mice uh, can correlate to what shakes down in the projects. But just the fact that the the mice total behavior changed at all, being in a project-like-ish environment, tells the story, okay? So as melanated people, we have to look at things for what they really are. And when I talk about breaking generational curses, it's a lot of work. Ain't going to sit here and lie. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of pain you have to walk through. But in order to truly create and sustain healthy Souls, that's what have to be done. So I'm not going to hold you all, family. I just wanted to share this experiment with you all. Um, I wish everyone well. Uh, This is Rhonda with WTUZ Radio Podcast. Peace and love, family. (laughs) 